0: Acts chapter number 9 this morning. The Bible begins in verse number 1 of Acts chapter 9 saying, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink." And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Would you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this group of people that's come out to hear your word today. Uh, Lord, you know exactly who should and shouldn't be here. You knew who would and wouldn't be here. Lord, I believe that You give messages for a purpose. And I pray, Lord, that You would use this message to be effectual in the hearts of those that are here. Lord, I pray it would draw saints closer to You as they remember Your goodness. And I pray that it draw the sinner closer to You, Lord, as he's aware of his need of Calvary. Lord, I thank You for the uh, for the opportunity to stand, Lord. And I need Your help. I can't do it in of myself. I'm unable. I'm insufficient. I'm incapable, I'm God. But I know that you can be my sufficiency, so Lord, help me to take myself out of the way and be used of you. Father, if you'll do these things, we'll give you the praise and honor and glory that you deserve. And Father, we'll know that we've met with you and that it's been good and that we've obeyed your word. Father, we ask all these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. How many of you, this is the first time you've read Acts chapter number 9. Anybody in the room? I figured it probably would not be. You see, Acts chapter number 9 is one of the most familiar portions in all of the Word of God. We have the conversion of a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Saul goes down by the name of Saul, and the Lord called him by his name, Saul, Saul. But you'll know this man better by the name Paul the Apostle. Now, some of you might say, well, preacher, why are you treading this ground? Why are you plowing this field again? It's been plowed so many times, and you'd be right about saying that there's been many times that people have gone through this passage, but I'll have you know that in this passage we find a pattern for the conversion of the soul. You see, the truth of the matter is that uh, in Acts chapter 9 we see a template. Many of you know what a template is. A template is a beginning place. A template is a universal thing. It can be used by anybody, and it might look a little different when you're done with the project, but everybody starts with the same template. You see, here in Acts chapter number 9, I, I'm going to be honest with you, when I saved, I wasn't my way to Damascus. When I was saved, I wasn't riding upon a horse or upon a mule. When I was saved, I I wasn't a man that was going to persecute the church. But you'll find that God puts a particular emphasis on the salvation experience of the Apostle Paul. And the reason for that is because there's elements in it that are universal to everyone's salvation. You see, you may not be in the same circumstances as Paul. You may not be in the same place as Paul. But you'll find that there's things about when you got saved that were identical to when Paul got saved. Uh, We find the life of Saul of Tarsus, later to be Paul the Apostle, to be an interesting one. It was not a life devoid of religion. In fact, uh, Paul's life was cram-packed with religion. And yet all the religion in the world, we find, could not save Saul of Tarsus. It was only when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus that his life changed. And I've titled this message, A Head-On Collision with Calvary. Let me tell you something, friend, what the sinner needs is not more religion. He needs a head-on collision with Calvary. What the sinner needs is not more friends or more money. He needs a head-on collision with Calvary. What the sinner needs is not to join a church or to be baptized. The sinner needs a head-on collision with Calvary. That's the template, friend. That's where it begins. You meet Christ. At Calvary, As I look at Paul's life, I am convicted and shown about a few things, and I just want to name them to you. Let's look at a few things that did not save Paul. I'd like to say, first off, that religious training could not save Paul. Uh, Paul sat at the feet of a man by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the chief teachers in Jerusalem at that time. In fact, young men would have coveted to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. He could open the Scriptures and show you wondrous things. He could go through the law and show you mighty things and there was plenty of men in training for ministry, I'm sure, in training for the priesthood that would have loved to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. If you had gone into Gamaliel's classroom, opened his door, and looked across his pupils, you would have found a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Saul had grown up in religious training. He knew the Word of God frontwards and backwards. He knew everything there was to know about Judaism. He had grown up in religious training. But religious training cannot save the sinner. I'm reminded when I uh, sing that song at Calvary, I don't know if you know this, but a man by the name of William Newell wrote the song at Calvary. Some of you, if you read books and study commentaries, you may have a commentary by William Newell. He wrote some commentaries on Revelation and Romans and Hebrews. William Newell was what I'd like to call a runaway Christian school kid. Uh, William Newell had grown up in a religious home. He had grown up with religious parents. When he came to a certain age, his rebellion was showing And so his mother and father took him to a school ran by a man named R.A. Torrey. Have you ever heard that name before? R.A. Torrey was an associate of D.L. Moody. And he was a great revivalist and a great scholar, wrote over 40 books. And he was a great man of God. And so they took William Newell uh, to the Bible school there in Los Angeles and wanted him to get some religious training. And they took him into Dr. Torrey and they said, Our son is rebellious and we think religious training might do him some good. Dr. Torrey sat down with uh, William Newell and began to talk with him and learned immediately that uh, William Newell had never been saved. And his parents pleaded and pleaded and pleaded with Dr. Torrey. So Dr. Torrey uh, said, I'll make you this deal. Every single day, uh, William Newell can come here, but every single day he's got to come and sit in my office so I can talk with him of the Savior and of Calvary. And William Newell had grown up in religious teaching. He had grown up in religious training. But it was those quiet talks by the desk of Dr. Torrey, being face to face with Calvary, that changed William R. Newell's life. Don't you wonder why it is that he sat there and wrote years? I spent in vanity and pride, caring not. My Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died. He knew that he died, but he didn't know he died for him. He knew that he died, but he didn't know he was the cause of the cross. He said, years I spent in vanity and pride. And then Calvary changed it all. (laughs) All Listen, neighbor, I went to Christian school and I praise the Lord for Christian school and some of the most wicked, ungodly kids you'll ever meet go to a Christian school they're hard as a coffin nail. They're gospel-saturated. They sit and listen to the preaching of the Word of God like a block wall, unresponsive. They've got all the religious training in the world. But do you know you can leave a Christian school with a diploma? You can leave a Christian college with a diploma. You can have it a master's degree or a doctorate degree in theology or in ministry and split hell wide open because it's not religious training that saves you. I'd like to say that it's not religious toiling that saves you. Let me tell you something, Paul was a religious man. I mean, he wasn't just, he used this term, he said, zealous, zealous. In other words, Paul wasn't lazy when it came to doing the work of Judaism. He gave this testimony in the book of uh, Philippians. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said uh, that that concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He said concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I mean, Saul would have sat in the big seat at the synagogue. Amen? Saul would have been the man that people would have looked to as a great religious leader. And here he was leaving home. We don't know a lot about Saul's background, Paul the Apostle. Some men uh, speculate that Paul had at one time been married, had lost his wife through death or uh, lost his children through death. We do not know. We do know that it was a requirement uh, to be part of the Sanhedrin, that you had to be married, that you had to have children. We know that Paul was a religious leader, but we're not aware of what had taken place in his life. Paul evidently made pretty good money. Uh, he was able to leave his home. He was able to leave his friends. And he went persecuting this way, as it's called in the Bible, persecuting believers of Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, uh, Paul wa- wanting a, a, a backseat Christian, you know. Paul Paul wasn't sitting on the bleachers. Uh, Paul wasn't standing aside and letting other people do the work of Judaism. Paul was zealous. He was serving. He thought he was serving God. He said he did it in ignorance. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was zealous. He would have been the type of person, if he was in the church today, he would have been the type of person that was there three times a week. He would have been the type of person that knocked on doors. He would have been the type of person that taught a Sunday school class. He would have been the type of person that everybody would look to and said, boy, old Paul's really got it. You know what he said? He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. <laughs> after all the religious training, after all the religious toiling, Paul says, I was just an old lost sinner on my way to hell. None of it could save me. Can I say, this might mess some of you up, you're, you're going to see me playing with this wire back here, I promise you. If I get wired up, I hope it's to heaven. I don't know, but I, I'm i trying to use this headset thing and it's it feels like you've got a big old granddaddy long legs latched on the side of your face, okay? So you just bear with me. Can I say that religious testimony in and of itself cannot save a man? You say, preacher, what do you mean? Listen, I believe in soul winning, I believe in door knocking, I believe in aggressively confrontationally giving the gospel. I didn't I didn't say ornally giving the gospel, but confrontationally facing the sinner with Calvary. What did Saul of Tarsus seen? We read earlier in the book of Acts of the first martyr of the New Testament church, a man named Stephen. Stephen they call him the preaching deacon. I like that. And they said he was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And Stephen stood and proclaimed the truth of God's Word. And he stood. I mean, Peter had backbone. Or Peter, listen at me. Uh, Stephen had backbone. He stood and he looked at all those Pharisees and looked at all those Jews. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of hearts, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. By the way, you know that blows the back door out of Calvinism right there? Irresistible grace, the notion that we have no choice in it. Uh, Stephen said, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. And they tell us that Stephen, they took him, they gnashed on him with their teeth. And they took Stephen and they dragged him out and they stoned him to death. Well, whenever they did that, there had to be someone that held people's coats. If you would have looked across the scene and looked at the man that was holding all the coats so that that dear saint, that dear deacon could be stoned to death, you would have seen a young man named Saul of Tarsus. He stood and held the coats of those took the life of Stephen. He had seen, he looked upon the face of the man that looked upon the face. <laughs> he looked upon the face of the man that saw the Son of God. He saw his countenance. He saw it change. He saw the glory on Stephen's face. That didn't save Saul of Tarsus. Let me tell you something. You can witness to someone till you're blue in the face until they're blue in the face. But if they don't ever get convicted by the Holy Spirit and faced with their need of Calvary, they'll never get saved. I think in this day that we live in, we rely too much on our words with others and not enough on our words with God. I believe we try to win people to Christ and we should. Don't misunderstand me. But I believe we try to do it without prayer and it will not avail. It's not you that saves that sinner. It's the Lord that saves that sinner. He's got to do a work in their heart. You say, preacher, are you saying we shouldn't witness? No, you need to witness. How shall they hear without a preacher? But I'm saying if the Lord doesn't do a work in their heart, all the preaching in the world ain't going to change them. All of the witnessing in the world ain't going to change them because it's not religious testimony that saves a man. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's them being in a head-on collision with the Lord. That's what changes a man's life. So we see some things that did not save him. And I want to give you three things very quickly that I believe we see in this passage, but I believe we would see these in the salvation testimony of any man. I want you to see three things that God did in his life. And I want to say, first off, if you're writing them down, that the Lord spoke. That's how the interaction began. Saul of Tarsus saw light shining from heaven, and he heard a voice that spoke unto him. And what was the first thing the Lord said? The Lord said, Saul, Saul, he spoke his name. Let me tell you something. When you got saved and when I got saved, the Lord spoke to our hearts. He didn't speak to somebody else's hearts. At least maybe He did, but it didn't have anything to do with our salvation. He didn't, listen, neighbor, when you get saved, it won't be because your wife gets under conviction. When you get saved, it won't be because your husband gets under conviction. When you get saved, it's not, listen, it's not a package deal. You don't get in when they get in. You get in when He speaks your name. He said, Saul, Saul. I remember when the Lord spoke my name, and it wasn't audibly. You know me well enough to know that it wasn't audibly. And anybody that says the Lord spoke to him audibly probably just ate too much chili or too many peppers. I don't know what it is. The Lord didn't. don't don't get tense in here now. Paul said he was seen last of all of me. Now you can believe that if you want, but I believe the Bible. You say, well, I read a story in God Post. Well, go ahead and read your, read your story in God Post. Uh, why don't you read it in God's Post? The Bible says seen last of all. Of me. Isn't that what Paul said? As the word of God inspired, is it true? Is it real today as it was then? I believe it is. So sing was seen last of all of me. So I'm not talking about he spoke audibly to me. But it was just as real as if he had. I, listen, I don't say you've heard my testimony a thousand times if you've heard it once. And I don't say this to boast in any way, shape, fashion, or form. Because I, the only thing I had to do with my salvation was accepting him. that's the only thing I had to do with it. But I had grown up in a gospel environment and I'd heard the word of God. And that didn't save me. You hear me? That didn't save me. I knew the gospel. I had an academic knowledge of it. That did not save me. But as a 10-year-old boy in my room alone, the Lord made it so real to me as though he could have spoken it audible, been in the room with me. And he said, son, if you died right now, you'd die and go to hell. I said, Lord, I don't want to die and go to hell. Lord, I don't want to die and go to hell. I knelt down on my knees and I called on him to save me. And you know what he did? <laughs> he did. But it all started when the Lord spoke to me individually. This salvation, now hear me now, this salvation's an individual thing. It's not an inherited thing. You hear me? I don't care how good your mama and daddy are. That's not going to get you in. I don't care how good your grandparents are. I don't care if your daddy was a preacher, your your papa was a preacher, your great-granddaddy was a preacher. I don't care if your mama was a Sunday school teacher. I don't care if your mama sang in the church. It is not an inherited matter. It's an individual thing. The Lord spoke and said, Saul, Saul, it was personal. Notice it was not only personal, it was pointed. Why persecutest thou me? You know what the Lord did? The Lord got to the very heart of the matter. Let me tell you something, as long as a man thinks he's dying and going to hell because he's a drunkard, he won't get saved. As long as a man thinks he's dying and going to hell because he's a sodomite or because he's a womanizer, that's not what saves a man. That's not what makes him aware of his need. Let me tell you what God did. God pulled Saul right into the middle of it and said, you don't worry about anybody else, Saul. This is just me and you. The person you're fighting with is me. Let me tell you, when a sinner's under conviction... Holy Ghost, real conviction. They fight everybody in the world, and they don't realize who it is they're fighting. They'll fight their their family that's praying for them, push against them. They'll fight their pastor that's preaching to them and praying for them and push against them. They'll fight their spouse that loves them and that's praying for them and that's pushing against them. And don't you know that Saul probably went up and down the road and said, if we could just get rid of these dirty old Christians, we'd be a lot better off. Don't you wonder why it is in this world that Muslims are given a long leash and Mormons are given a long leash and the Roman Catholics are given a long leash, but an old Bible-believing Christian is persecuted every time he turns his head? Don't you wonder why this world hates real old-time Holy Ghost Christianity? Don't you wonder why that is? I'll tell you exactly why it is. They're kicking against the pricks. They're fighting everybody in the world. But let me tell you, when a sinner gets saved when he understands who it is he's really fighting against. Paul thought he was doing God a service. He thought he was doing his synagogue and uh, the priesthood a service. He thought he was doing the Sanhedrin a service. But when he came face to face with God, he came to understand that all the bitterness and all the hatred and all the pushing and all the pulling and all the kicking was just him trying to get away from God. When a sinner becomes aware, that it's not about that hypocrite that you knew that used to go church with you. It's not about that family member that you've got that's preached at you a thousand times but lives like hell. It's not about, listen, it's not about your mama or daddy that told you the word of God and told you the good things of God but then turned around and disappointed you. Let me tell you who it's about, neighbor. It's about you and Almighty God. That's what this salvation matters about. It's about you standing before the God of heaven and giving an account for the things done in the body. That's what it's about. We see that it was pointed. But I want to say it was not only pointed. It was convicting. It was pricking. He said, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. There was a supernatural work going on in the heart of Saul of Tarsus. It was not conscience. There is a difference between conscience and conviction. Do you hear me? Conscience tells you that what you do upsets everyone else. Conviction tells you that what you do upsets God. Conscience tells you that society does not accept you. Conviction tells you that the Savior does not accept you. That's the difference. He fell under conviction. He was as moral a man as you'll ever meet. I mean, I think if you'd been around Saul of Tarsus and you'd probably gone to tell a dirty joke, he'd have said, hey, I don't allow that around here. Probably if you were around Saul of Tarsus and he was riding up and down the road with him, if one of them old boys had pulled out a wine bottle and started to drink, Saul would have probably said, hey, not while you're in my company. He was as moral a man as you'll ever meet. And he was on his way to hell. You see, let me just be real honest with you. That road to Damascus, that leads straight into a devil's hell. You say, what do you mean, preacher? The road to Damascus pictures for us Saul's own determinate will. Damascus was where Saul wanted to go. Damascus was where his plans led him. And there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You can think that you're right. You can feel you're right. You can determine that you're right in what you're doing. But if you've never met the Savior, you're as lost as they come. You can go to hell a moral man or you can go to hell a wicked man, but you'll go all the same. The only way to avoid hell is through the cross of Calvary. That's the only way. We see that the Lord spoke. But I want to say, number two, that the Lord broke every sinner that's come to know the Savior has come to know him because the Lord broke him first. What does the Bible say about uh, the Savior? The Bible says that he's that great rock that falls upon people and that there's one of two choices. You can either be broken on that rock or you can be ground to pieces by that rock. That's the only two choices. When the Lord saved me, he broke me. Now, I'm thankful he broke me, but he put me back together, a new creature in Christ Jesus. But he had to break me first. Look what he did for Saul of Tarsus. I want to say that first off, he took his steed. <laughs> the first thing God did was he knocked him off his high horse. Uh, Saul saw that light shining from heaven. You say, what was that? That was God's high beams. Amen. <laughs> Paul was going one direction. The Lord was coming the other. and God just flashed them high beams, knocked him off his high horse. The Lord humbled him. And made him aware that he really wasn't as good as he thought he was. Pride is the most wicked sin that's revealed in all of the Word of God. Because pride is the singular sin that keeps men from going to heaven. You say, I I thought, preacher, that no liars or fornicators or adulterers. That's true. But what keeps a man a liar, a fornicator, or an adulterer? Pride. You say, I thought there was no wicked uh, that was going to be in that new Jerusalem. and No unclean thing. I thought that. Yeah, that's true. But what's the difference between a saved man and a lost man? It's not their own righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. He's got to break you and make you aware that regardless of what you think yourself, if you've never accepted the Savior, you're not making it to heaven. Let me tell you, neighbor, the reason that, that in this day of Pentecostalism and charismatic religion, you know, why, you know why people like to believe? Let me just share a little anecdote with you. You know why people like to believe that in a work salvation? It's an issue of pride. I've knocked on doors up and down through this city, and there's been times I've stood on a man's doorstep and said, if you don't get saved, you're going to die and go to hell, and had him hug my neck. I'm talking about somebody that didn't get saved and had him hug my neck and say, thank you for coming. The only time that I have ever been threatened to be ordered off of a property, the only time was when I met a woman that believed she could lose her salvation. I said, according to the Scriptures, you're wrong about that. You say, why would a man want to believe he can lose his salvation? It's not that people like to believe they can lose their salvation. It's that people like to believe they can keep their salvation. That's the difference. Nobody likes the idea of losing their salvation. But you meet the average person that believes you can lose your salvation. Most of them don't believe they've lost theirs. It's a point of pride. They like to feel like they're good enough to get to heaven On their own. They like to feel like they're good enough to make it through their own righteousness and good works. That's that wicked sin of pride. What does the Bible say? The Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. The Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't care how good you think you are. You're not as good as the Lord. I don't care how good you think you are. You're not as good as the Savior. You're not perfect. We all need a Savior. But a lot of times we ride around on that big old white horse and we think we're really something. And and, and I'm, I'm sure Paul had a pretty good view as he sat up on that horse. He could look all around. But the problem is as long as he was riding that horse, he couldn't look up. Let me tell you something. As long as you're going on in this life with your plans and your way, you won't look up to the Lord. He's got to stop you. He's got to knock you off your horse. He's got to make you aware of your need of Him. I want to say He took His steed, but He took His sight. (laughs) He blinded Him. Why did He blind Him, preacher? To make Him aware that He needed to walk by faith. Let me tell you something. Uh, The the sinner always thinks he knows everything. And and let me tell you something. A lot of saints do too, by the way. (laughs) It's intrinsic to the human heart to believe we understand and know absolutely everything. And sometimes we get on people and we say, you know, uh, you think you're right about everything. I always used to tell people, well, of course we do. Wouldn't it be dumb to know you're wrong about something and go along that way anyway? We all operate by what we believe is right. And so the Lord did not give him corrective lenses. The Lord didn't show Paul that he was a little bit wrong. The Lord had to blind him and make him aware that everything he sees is not really reality. You say, preacher, what you driving at? The sinner has to be made aware that what seems right to him does not necessarily constitute what's right with God. He has to be made aware that what he sees and the way he thinks, and the way he does things, is not necessarily the way God thinks and the way God sees things and the way God does things. You hear it all the time. People say this phrase. How many of you have heard someone say this? Well, it's right for me. I didn't know the Bible worked that way. I didn't know something was going to be right for you that was going to be wrong for me. Uh, Last I checked, the Bible gives us a standard. We don't measure up to it. And so we need the cross of Calvary. We need the grace of God. We need the righteousness of Christ to be robed about us if we're going to measure up to it. But after we've been measured up to it, we look into the perfect law of liberty. That's what the Bible says. It's not your perfect law. It's not my perfect law. It's his perfect law. We look into it. We have to be made blind before we're ever going to see. We have to be made aware that we cannot save ourselves before we'll ever be saved. We have to be made aware that our way is wrong before we'll ever learn which way is right. He took his sight and he took his self-righteousness. Ever since that day, Paul talked about himself in a different light. You know, I kind of think if you had talked to Paul before then, Paul would have probably talked a lot about himself. He would have probably talked about his own righteousness who would have probably talked about his own good works, talked about his own abilities. The only time that he talks about his abilities after that day, he talks about them with disdain. He spoke of his righteousness concerning the law, blameless. He spoke of his zeal. He spoke of his heritage and his pedigree. You know what he said about them? He said, they're but dung. I count them loss that I may win Christ. See, after he met the Lord that day, he got a readjusted view of who and what he was. And when the sinner comes to know Christ as his Savior, he begins to understand just how wretched he is. Now, this world will tell you that uh, that an inferiority complex is going to mess you up. That's what the world tells you. The world tells you that the problem with kids today is they do not have enough self-esteem. And they say, the problem is our kids are growing up with no self-esteem, their egos are are too small, and they need to be bolstered and told that they can do any and everything that they want to do, that the power is within themselves to live the way they want to live, and that they can succeed in and of themselves. What does the Bible say about it? The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, no man ever yet hated his own flesh. This world can tell you that you've got a self-esteem problem, And most most sinners do have a self-esteem problem. It's not that it's too low, it's that it's too high. Let me tell you something, a lot of saints have the same problem too. It's not a self-esteem problem that it's too low, it's a self-esteem problem that it's too high. What does the Bible say? God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble, a broken and a contrite spirit thou wilt not refuse. The fact is, the sinner has to be made aware that he's not all he thinks he is. You say, "Oh, preacher, that's cruel." No, no, that's Calvary. You say, "Oh, preacher, that's rude." No, no, that's righteousness. You say, "Oh, preacher, that'll stunt him." No, that'll save him. That's what that's what it takes. They've got to be made aware. God spoke, and then God broke. And I want to give you a final thing, and I'll hush. I want to say that God yoked, God broke Paul. But then he yoked him to some things. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, first off, he yoked him to the Savior. When you come to know Christ as your Savior, the Bible tells us that we're placed in the body of Christ. The Bible does not say when we join a local church, we're placed in the body of Christ. Somebody say amen right there. The Bible says when we're saved, we're baptized by one Spirit into the body of Christ. We become a part of Christ. We're in Him. He's in us. And you know, that changed old Paul. He was never the same after that day. Why? You know what he said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved and gave himself for me. You see, the reason Paul changed that day is because God became a part of his life. Not religion, not creeds, not conduct, Christ Became a part of his life. I'm reminded of the little girl that uh, uh, had just accepted Christ as her Savior. And I've told you this before. You, you can hush me here in a minute. But she had just accepted Christ as her Savior. And you know, the preacher brought her to the front. And he had asked the questions. You ever been to a church where they do that? They bring them to the front. And they'd ask them questions. Uh, There's three or four little kids there. And he was asking them questions. He came to this little girl. He said, honey, what would you do today? She said, I got saved. He said, well, amen, if you died, where would you go? She said, I'd go to heaven. And he began to move on and she said, preacher. And he came back and said, yes, honey. She said, if God is so big and he lives in me, won't he stick out? (laughs) Let me tell you something. You really get saved by the grace of God, it'll change you. You get something as big as God in your life, it's going to show it's going to change you. I still believe that we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Behold, all whole things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I still believe that God doesn't just save a man. I believe He sanctifies him. I don't believe God uh, just redeems a man. I believe He renovates him and changes him. I believe we're transformed and changed when Christ saves us. He yoked him to the Savior. But I want you to notice that He yoked him to other saints. What did He do? He said... Paul, Saul, arise. Paul got up. And when he did, he said, what do I need to do, Lord? And he said, I want you to go and find a man by the name of Ananias. The first thing that the Lord did was put him together with other believers. Let me tell you something. I I know sometimes, and I promise you, I'm not preaching this because it's time change. I promise you. But you know, you need other Christians in your life. You know, you need a church family. And if you don't think you do, you just wait. You will. God has designed it in such a way that as believers, we might gather together in fellowship and have the love and support and prayers of each other. I know some people say, oh, I worship God on the golf course. You do that all you want Monday through Saturday, but you ought to be in the Lord's house come Sunday. You say, I go to the mountains and have my time alone with God. Good. You know, the Lord did that. But when the Sabbath day came around, he was in the synagogue. I know we're not under law. But listen to me, you don't need to forsake the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I believe you need a church family. I know I need a church family. You say, oh, preacher, you need a church to pastor. No, I need a church family. I I don't know, I probably don't say it enough, but I love you all. You're my family. I mean, I've got family and I'll say it like Larry. I got family that I don't see but once a year and I see you all two, three times a week. You're my family. And I need you. I don't just need a place to pastor. I need a church family. If this old boy wasn't pastoring, he'd still be in a church somewhere. We all need a church family, every one of us. The Lord yokes us together with other saints. That's what we need. But I want to say finally, he yoked him together with the Savior and with saints, but he yoked him together with service. The Lord saved Paul for a reason. I believe Paul fulfilled that reason. What did Paul say about it? Paul said, I finished my course. Say, Preacher, where would that course begin? It began on a Damascus road when he'd been knocked off of his horse, blinded and saved by the grace of God. God changed his life that day, but God set him aside to be a light to the Gentiles. Every single one of you. God didn't save you to sit. He saved you to serve. He didn't just save you so you could be in heaven with him eternally. I mean, listen, that's wonderful and that's a big part of it. But he saved you so that you could serve him. Win others to Christ and be a ministry to other people. You say, well, that's just not my thing. If you're saved, it is. You say, well, preacher, you don't understand. I just, there's not much I can do. There's something you can do. Boy, I think the preacher Monday night, he just preached all over that if he was here. There's something you can do. You say, I can't do what they can do. Nobody asks you to do what they can do. You do what you can do for the Lord. He said, I can't do it like they can do it. Well, thank the Lord He didn't create you like them. Wouldn't you hate if we was all the same? What if everybody in this world was as ugly as me? Wouldn't that be awful? Listen, the Lord has saved you so that you can work and serve Him. Uh, that's your work to do in this life. Our purpose is to glorify Him. But our work is to be in His service, in His field. We have a responsibility to worship at His feet, to work in His field to labor for Him. And there's not a single one of us that gets to call disability on that because the Lord is our ability. There's not a single one of us that gets to call insufficiency on that because God is our sufficiency. You see, every single one of us has a work to do for the Lord. I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you like I know about me. In this passage, we have a template. You may have not been on a Damascus road when the Lord saved you, In fact, probably no one in here was. But the road you were on was going to lead to hell just like the road Paul was on. You may have not been riding a horse. In fact, probably you weren't. But you was on the steed of your pride. The Lord had to knock you down. Your name probably isn't Saul. In fact, I look around at this place and I don't see a single person. Maybe it's a middle name or you go by a middle name and that's your first name. You can tell me later if you want. But I don't see a single person named Saul. But he spoke your name when he saved you. You see, some of these things are universal. And let me tell you something. You may be here today and you've never yielded. You've never waved the white flag. You've never called on his name. You can call it whatever you want it. But you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. You know what he told Agrippa? He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. You know what that means? Paul says, when the Lord spoke to me, I spoke back. When the Lord convicted me, I called on him. When, when when the Lord spoke to me, I spoke to him. You may be here and you've never been saved. I don't know. I don't know your heart. But I can tell you this. If you've never been saved today, God can save you. You say, oh, preacher, I didn't think we'd get saved any time we want to. Well, we could discuss that all you want. But I'll, I, this is sufficient to say. If you want to get saved, today's the day. Today's the day. You say, would Paul have gotten saved a year before that? I don't know. But I know on the day that the Lord spoke his name, he yielded. And the Lord saved him. The only person that can give you the want to to be saved is the Lord. He convicts you of your lost and undone state. He makes you aware of your need of him. If you want to, it's because the Lord's dealing with you. Don't leave this place a lost person. Call on his name. Yield at his feet. Accept the Savior today, today.